Endo Life episode 98. I'm Jessica Duffin. I'm an endo warrior and endo health coach, and this podcast is all about living and thriving with endometriosis. As always, this podcast is not here to replace your current medical treatment and is here for educational purposes only. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to my lovely sponsors at BU. Um, and I wanted to tell you about their new bath bombs, which are naturally made um, and contain beautiful essential oils and their peppermint and eucalyptus essential oils um, bath bomb is doing so well right now with endometriosis community they're getting loads of feedback about it Um, and you know if you love the patches themselves you're going to love the bath bombs because essentially it's the patch in a bath bomb. Um, so, you know, if you're on your period or if you're in pain, you could have a bath with some of the bath bombs um, or one of them. I don't know. You could have multiple if you want. Um, and then yeah, get out the bath, maybe rub in some CBD balm and put your patch on top, which is um, what a lot of people are feeding back that they're doing. So um, I would love to do that. But um I don't have a bath, so I can't. But if you have a bath, um, then, you know, I think these new bath bombs could be a lovely way to help alleviate some of your pain. So if you'd like to check them out, you can go to BU, which is buonline.co.uk. And you can also order them from anywhere in the world on cultbeauty.co.uk and they deliver worldwide. Okay, so this episode was supposed to go out at the end of last week, but it appears that we have a like Airbnb accommodation next to our bedroom now, and we live in a small flat, and so I record in the bedroom, and living room is on the main road, so you can't record in, in there. And from Friday, there were guys out, the back playing the most random mix of music clapping and singing along and there was a lot of lad banter and it was just impossible to record so here we are it's going to be a double whammy this week in that case there's going to be two episodes out this week today and at the end of the week and actually they are both with my wonderful guest Dr Alison Seebecker because we ended up talking for two hours and I just thought that's yeah it's too long to put out as one episode and I actually think it will be easier to absorb in two sections because we sort of spend the first half talking about the symptoms and signs and root causes of SIBO and the second half is all about the treatments. So clearly, as you've guessed by now, today's guest is Dr. Alison Seebecker. She is the SIBO queen. She's a naturopathic doctor. She is a world-leading SIBO specialist and expert. She talks at 
conferences, she lectures, she teaches, she trains through her wonderful SIBO professional course that I've done. She has a patient course as well. She has an incredible free online, on, <laughs> I was about to say online website, clearly it's an online website. And she is just so generous with her time and her knowledge. She really is just such a beacon of light in the SIBO community and quite honestly one of the nicest people I've ever met when I was doing the course her her just kindness and generosity and lovely nature just radiated through the course and meeting her she was just the same it's just an absolute privilege to have her on the show and to be able to get her her opinion on all of my questions, get her answers. And she really is just um, an incredible fountain of knowledge when it comes to SIBO. So we are so lucky to have her on the show today. In this episode, we are deep diving into the association and the link between SIBO, endometriosis and interstitial cystitis. And we are talking about the signs and symptoms of SIBO, specifically the more kind of like tricky ones and the kind of details that can get lost in, you know, the the kind of standard symptom lists that you see online. And we discuss her story of having chronic SIBO and when that developed and how she is managing it now. And we talk about the root causes of SIBO, specifically endometriosis adhesions and what we can do about them. So if you've been struggling with the endo belly, you know, constant IBS issues, bloating, nausea, etc. This is just an absolute must. I really, really recommend that you listen to this episode and all the links to everything we've discussed will be in the show notes. A massive thank you to Alison for coming on the show. Absolutely podcast highlight highlight of my podcast career I guess is what what you could say so yeah enjoy the show I'd love to start if if you're happy to share a bit with your story um and you know just because obviously you're um a doctor and I know that you have chronic relapse and SIBO so I wondered if you could share that story a bit with us and what's um you know what led you to do the work that you do now? Yeah, so I had SIBO, um, as far as I know, since I was five. It wasn't diagnosed until much later, but what happened was I was born normal in terms of my bowel movements, at least reporting from my my mom and my family. And then around five, I began to to be constipated. And I remember when that happened. It was, I remember as a little child, being confused about why I was sitting on the toilet. And I didn't know what constipation was, right? I had to ask. (laughs) So, and what had happened um, just, just before that, I don't know exactly how, how soon before was that I had a very, very bad bout of food poisoning, which is a classic way that people can get SIBO. And, um, you know, I remember it all these years later, it was really bad and it had made me scared and stuff. So anyway, I wound up having um, bloating and constipation and abdominal discomfort and you know, food sensitivities my whole life. And um, eventually I did get a diagnosis of IBS, but very unfortunately, there really aren't good treatments for that, as we know. And then I learned out about learned about SIBO and I thought, I think this could be what I have. And I took the test and yes, I have it. So um, 
Uh, I learned, uh, learned about the term SIBO from my old gastroenterology professor because I was helping him edit his book. And then when I, when I got that search term, he had just learned about it from a colleague of ours, actually Dr. Weinstock, from reading an article. And so I went on and did about six months of intense research and came back to him and said, did, um, did you know about all this? And he said, oh my God, no, please tell me all about it. And so, we, <laughs> oh my God, you know, so we formed a partnership where I was doing all the research. Um, I wasn't practicing right at that year um, because I was taking care of my mom. She was quite sick that year. And, um, and so anyway, then he was implementing in the clinic and soon enough, I went back to seeing patients and we, we had a partnership and, and basically, uh, did what we could to help raise awareness about SIBO. And that was about 10 years ago. So, um, you know, I made a free educational website and all that. So, you know, I've, I've devoted my career to sort of helping, helping practitioners and patients learn about it. And basically because I want people to understand who have IBS, that there is something you can do and not, not all people with IBS have SIBO, but SIBO is the primary cause of IBS about 60 to 70%. And so it's very important that people understand that there is, it's, IBS really is something, it's something else, actually, and you can treat it. And um, now the unfortunate circumstance is that two thirds of those cases are thought to be chronic, like mine. And then one third, they get cured, meaning like you treat them, and it's gone, and they don't ever have to think about it again. But for two thirds of the cases, often the underlying causes can't be cured or resolved, um, or we don't know how yet, and people are working on it. And so I don't, for me, I've never fully found my underlying cause, although I think it could be the food poisoning. Um, uh, I don't actually test positive for that. There's a test oh, really? you can do for that. I know, <laughs> there's a test you can do for that, which we can talk about, but, um, but it could be because the event, the food poisoning event was when I was five, you know, and I'm 50. So the test is new. It's like three or four years old and we don't know all of its limitations yet. So I'm not that concerned about that. Um, but anyway, so what I do for my own self is I have treated myself many times with all different sorts of things. I test myself and, um, and then I manage, I manage whatever's left with uh, what we do for chronic management, which we can talk more about later, which is basically diet and prokinetics and various little you know, supplements if something pops up to bother me. But mostly you can really control, control your symptoms by you know, dietary um, measures, which don't have to be that strict for me anymore. You know, once you kind of get into a good pattern here with treatment and management, I live a very happy life. And I think that's what's good to communicate um, you know, we all have our struggles, but I'm not, I'm not affected the way I used to be by my SIBO symptoms or my IBS symptoms. Uh, I don't, you know, they're very minimal. They don't impact my quality of life for the most part. I'm so, I've got it down. I manage it. I, and I'm very productive. I'm, you know, I'm a professor and I, I write books. I teach constantly. Um, right now I'm not seeing patients, but I did for, you know, eight years. So you know, I have a happy, healthy life, even though I have this ongoing. So I just would want to give that message forward to people. Oh yeah. I'm so glad you said that because I remember in the, in the training, I think you said something along the lines of, um, chronic doesn't mean like, you know, chronic doesn't mean you're permanently unwell. 
And I think with the endometriosis community, unfortunately, there's this um, constant narrative about endometriosis being like, um, there's there's no cure for endometriosis at the moment. But then I think it sort of gets blurred with people saying like, it's incurable. Like I've heard people say like, well, there's nothing that can be done. It's, it's incurable. It will forever be incurable. And, you know, we're forever beyond well. And that's not, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think, unfortunately, with the endo community, we speak to a lot of doctors who say, well, you know, there's nothing really, there's nothing more we can do. And so to then learn you have something else called SIBO that might be chronic, I think could be quite scary. So to hear that you are living a happy, normal life is just wonderful. Yeah, th- thank you. It's it's the same in SIBO, um, like in, in support groups or whatever, you know, people, well, of course, you know, online support groups, it's it's the people who aren't doing well usually that are in them. Once you feel better, you usually are leave them. So that we all have to keep that in mind. But, you know, but I think the key thing that, that you're bringing up here is just that just because something might be incurable at the, at the moment doesn't mean it can't be managed and that there's, there isn't nothing we can do. There's tons we can do. It just, you know, it may not cure it in quotations, but you still have it, but you're managed well. And that's the key point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's also really, you know, lovely to hear that for me as well, because I'm I'm newly diagnosed and um our stories are actually quite similar. Um I was hospitalized when I was two with um I can never say this, gastroenteritis. Am I saying it right? You got it right. Great. <laughs> and um and now, since I remember like conscious memory, I've had really bad bloating and um, IBS issues and all, you know, photos of me as a, as a child with this big bloated belly. And um, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what it was growing up and um, I was told to hold my stomach in and, and I went down a really, you know, a, a spiraled path of like, 11, 12 years of a really severe eating disorder trying to get my stomach flat. And, you know, I've, I'm 32 now and I've only just got my diagnosis. And over the years, because of the SIBO and we're diving into the symptoms, I've developed so many different symptoms such as severe anxiety and brain fog and um, I'm not absorbing nutrients. And it's like, oh my gosh, I've lived like this. Like I was anxious since, you know, my, since I could remember, I've been anxious. And, um, so it's to, so when I got the diagnosis, it was a relief, but also quite, I had quite a lot of grief of how much, you know, how much I had gone through. And so I'm just coming to terms with that and trying to get my head around, like, you know, if this is chronic, like how, how do I manage it going forward? So, um, so yeah, it's lovely to hear. Um, so for anyone who I've actually done a couple of podcasts on this, so hopefully people have listened, but if they haven't, um, what can you kind of guide us through what SIBO is and, and tell us more about the three types of SIBO? Absolutely. So, um, basically what it is, is when the normal bacteria that live in the, in the intestines, particularly the small intestines, when they start overgrowing, so they, they, they start sort of accumulating and overgrowing. So it's a key distinction that it's not like a typical uh, gastrointestinal bacterial infection, you know, like food poisoning, because those are foreign pathogenic bacteria. And um, the ones that overgrow in SIBO are normal commensal bacteria. And 
uh, we divide SIBO into three types based on the three gases that bacteria make and the corresponding bowel movement symptoms that come. So we have hydrogen gas that's associated with diarrhea, methane, which is associated with constipation, and hydrogen sulfide, which is associated with diarrhea. And hydrogen sulfide, we can't test for yet commercially. Um, the technology has been developed to assess that gas, but it's not out commercially yet. So in the meantime, we, we've focused a lot more on the hydrogen and the methane, because that's what we know more about. And when those two gases are both positive, both there together, there tends to be a mixture of diarrhea and constipation. So that's like the IBS mixed. And we assume that that will be the case with the hydrogen sulfide. Like if hydrogen sulfide tends to cause diarrhea and then it's with methane, you'd have a mix. But we just, we have to wait till we see the studies on all of that. So those are, those are the three types. And recently, uh, the methane type of SIBO has been given, uh, proposed a new name and new classification because it's not actually bacteria that produce that gas, it's archaea, which are similar to bacteria. They're very similar microorganism. And so it doesn't quite uh, logistically fit <laughs> uh, nomenclature wise with the name small intestine bacterial overgrowth because they're not bacteria. And so instead they've proposed intestinal methanogen, uh, methanogen meaning these uh, archaea overgrowth uh, or emo for short. And um, that should be starting to catch on. But for now, uh, I'm just going to call it like we've always thought of it as a, a type of SIBO. Uh, thinking of it as a different, not thinking of it as SIBO in and of itself, it doesn't change what we know about it or how we treat it. It's just a classification. So I just wanted to mention that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, <laughs> I find it difficult and I haven't even been, you know, talking about SIBO for a long time, but um, it's just, it feels kind of much more natural to kind of talk about them all together as as the types it does because they, they all come together you know they coexist all the time so and um just to like clarify with the normal you know it's an overgrowth of normal bacteria am I right in saying that um you know normally in a, in a healthy gut the majority of the bacteria should be in the large intestine and actually there's only a very small amount in the small intestine in order to aid absorption. That's absolutely true. Um, just as you've said it, we've only just recently started to uh, have studies come out about the small intestine bacteria and the, like the microbiome there because it's a hard place to test and they had to develop the testing methodology. And um, as those, those new studies are coming out, there's actually a suspicion there might be more bacteria in the small intestine than we previously thought, uh, simply because of all the, um, the the structure there has like what they call fingers and hairs, villi and microvilli, a lot of these um, miniature <laughs> protrusions, which increase surface area. And it's just simply a matter of that. It's like, you know, if there's a thin coating of bacteria along these areas, just because there's so much of them, there may actually be quite a bit of bacteria, but it's it's um, it's a different sort of a circumstance. I that I, this is sort of an advanced and new concept yeah. <laughs> that I'm just throwing out there. But 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 basically, we shouldn't certainly we shouldn't have an overgrowth like we can measure. We actually can measure an overgrowth of these bacteria, and it leads to all kinds of problems because they interfere with the digestion process, process and the absorption process. Um, that's why we don't have too, too many there. And down in the large intestine, 
they sort of get any leftovers like fiber that we can't digest and they go to work on it and they do all sorts of good things for us there, but they really need to be in, in their really big, large amounts like that, not in the small intestine. They need to be in the large intestine. Okay. Okay. You know, that's, that's really clear. And so, you know, you've mentioned that, um, the, the bacteria affects the way that we absorb nutrients and the way that we digest. So what are the signs and symptoms of SIBO? Because I think sometimes you can read um, a symptom list, but in your course, you were so detailed with like um, the nuances of, of the symptoms, but also like the signs like chronic low ferritin and, and things like that, that you wouldn't really think of as a symptom, but they're just odd things going on in your body. So um, that really helped me to piece together the puzzle. And I would love to hear, yeah, I would love to share those symptoms and signs with our listeners. Oh, absolutely. Well, the I'll start with the symptoms. Um, kind of as you and I have been mentioning, um, there's, you know, bowel movement irregularities. So constipation, diarrhea, or sort of some kind of combination of them. Abdominal bloating. I also have had that, you know, my whole life. It's It's my number one most worst symptom. I hate it. Um, and pain or discomfort. And those are the symptoms of IBS right there, you know, bowel movement, trouble, bloating and pain. And there can be, um, excessive belching or uncomfortable, um, belching or flatulence. A lot of people have a lot of flatulence that's sort of as the gas exits. And then, um, I think one of the overarching things to know is that as I describe these symptoms, they, they come from eating. So, that is key. <laughs> so, and particularly they tend to come from carbohydrates, which is a massive category of foods, not just like sweets and snacks, but also fruits and vegetables. And so we get a lot of symptoms from eating natural, healthy food, even just regular meals, which is just awful. There can also be symptoms that are unrelated to the gastrointestinal tract, like headaches, you know, or um, nasal mucus that come after eating. And we typically associate this with with a person having leaky gut. Um, that's because those tend to be those types of symptoms. It could be any sort of non-GI symptom. But moving on in the um, GI symptoms, there can also be heartburn, uh, nausea, or a sensation of fullness and, and food sitting in the stomach that won't go down. And then as you mentioned, anxiety and brain fog, they're very common in SIBO. And also depression, anxiety is uh, double as common, like, or you see that twice as much as you see depression. So anxiety is much more common. Um, and then lastly, fatigue and um, weight loss. And weight, there's all kinds of reasons for the weight loss. People can be normal weight and sometimes they even gain weight with SIBO, but it's just a bit more common to see people losing weight. So let me just zoom right into the signs and then we can discuss all these. But so uh, low weight or being underweight is a sign of SIBO and it really exemplifies um, or whatever shows a person that there could be malabsorption going on. And malabsorption is a big thing in SIBO. And as you mentioned, chronic low ferritin is one of the key uh, signs of that. People can have anemia who have SIBO, but it's more common that they would just have chronic low ferritin. So ferritin is uh, the storage form of iron. And it's basically like pre-anemia, like first your stores go low and then you're all out. And when you're all out, that's anemia. So this is like you're heading that way. And what the anemia with um, SIBO is either going to be of B12 or iron, but not folic acid. I don't know if everybody knows there's three types of anemia, but um, it's just the B12 and the iron type. So, and then you could have things like um, greasy fatty stools. That's medically, that's called steatorrhea. 
um, or you could you could be have like low vitamin D or other fat soluble vitamins. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons for all of these things. There's a lot of other reasons to have low vitamin D, but this is one reason. And um, potentially even low albumin, although that's much more rare. That's a protein in your you'd see on a blood test. And um, another thing that you might see is uh, if you ever had an image done of your abdomen, they might say that if you have had a constipation type of chronic constipation, they might say you have a redundant colon or an extra long colon or an extra loop of colon. And that usually comes from um, if there was periods in your life where you weren't treating the constipation, meaning helping yourself go, like with a laxative or magnesium or something, then the colon has to stretch to accommodate the stool that isn't leaving. So that's what that's from. And then just lastly, there can be um, some conditions. Now, SIBO has a lot of conditions that can be associated with it. Either they cause it, or maybe SIBO causes the conditions. But there's also just some associated conditions that I like to point out, kind of like how you were just saying, oh, chronoproferritin, hmm, um, as a little like, hmm. And these would include rosacea, and psoriasis to skin conditions, restless leg syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis, and interstitial cystitis. So there, I've just laid out a ton of stuff. I'm sure you have comments. It's so interesting because I I have rosacea and I have interstitial cystitis. So those were big key. I'd suspected SIBO for a couple of years when I first did my training. Um, But then when I did yours, I was like, this is, this is it. Um, but yeah. I was, I, and, I, and I see this in quite a lot of my clients, like these different associated um, conditions. And another thing that I'm seeing a lot, and I wonder if this is to do with the um, malabsorption, the low iron, perhaps difficulty absorbing protein, because, you know, um, SIBO can lead to low stomach acid and low digestive enzymes. But do you ever see hair loss being a thing? Yeah, but where I've seen it is, once people start on a SIBO diet, typically hair loss will hit two to three months later. Mm. Um, now, I haven't, you know, it's possible that it's absolutely possible that SIBO could cause it due to malabsorption. Um, but I just, I mostly see it in that pattern. Um, and as I've asked around my colleagues, um, I have found out that it's fairly common for there to be hair loss with any type of sort of dramatic change in diet. Um, The other place I've seen hair loss is with hormonal changes, you know, like it's common with when people get um, pregnant or then, you know, in the nursing phase and various things and also with menopause and um, puberty. So that's something else to keep in mind. And, but I do, I could just have not noticed um, this sort of pattern because it's definitely possible with the malabsorption. Yeah. And I I guess, a lot of people, I mean, the the clients that I'm thinking of had started restricting their diet themselves in order to control symptoms that, you know, they didn't understand. Um, and often for one reason or another, they've kind of limited protein sources. So um, in fact, that's usually the key thing is when protein drops. And, and in fact, um, treatment for when you have had hair loss you know, due to your health and diet is drastically increasing protein. So that could be it. Mm, yeah, I, it does. It does seem to to make sense. And with the, you know, with the anxiety, I think that for me is a really interesting topic because obviously I've, I've personally been affected by it, but so many of the 
um, endometriosis community suffer with anxiety. And I think there's this, um, you know, understandably so, this temptation to lump everything under endometriosis because endometriosis has quite a wide umbrella of symptoms and because it's a chronic disease it often comes with you know chronic fatigue and brain fog and and things like that and um it just I think we can easily lump those symptoms under endo and be like well there's nothing I can do about it it's just what it's like to live with chronic disease but why does anxiety arise with with SIBO and um is there something to look is there a certain type of anxiety that would manifest like that you often see in people absolutely uh the uh, first answer to the type it's um i mostly see it about concerns and worry and anxiety about the future and you know being as that i'm acting as someone's doctor it mostly comes out about anxiety about future treatments Mm -hmm. and so i call it negative futuring and um and so what happens is as I give a treatment, then people will say, well, what if that doesn't work? And, and what I'll find is, is that kind of line of questioning can be endless. So I'll say, okay, well, here's my plan B. This is what I'll do if it doesn't work. And then they're like, and then what if plan B doesn't work? So I'll give a plan C. And then that's about as much as I'm willing to do. Because yeah. <laughs> then I'll say, well, then what if plan C doesn't work? And you can see how it's, you're, it starts to fall apart because what anxiety doesn't allow for is the passage of time. I mean, that's really that's really what anxiety is. It's, it's, um, you know, it's panic. Um, and so it doesn't allow for, there's going to be some things that will happen that can change your circumstance for the better. And we just have to allow that to occur, you know? So, um, and also what I see is, is that, um, the anxiety will often disturb sleep and, um, make people very anxious about everything that they're eating which is going to be a concern with SIBO anyway, because the the symptoms um, come from eating. So it's very common to be worried. Oh my gosh, if I eat this, will it hurt me? You know, but it's even more so with uh, when somebody has anxiety. And I guess um, I, I'll describe where it comes from in a minute. But a key thing is to know that here that it isn't based on personality, and and this is the part that bothers me the most is that with with SIBO patients this is that they get blamed for their anxiety like like they have a an, an, an undesirable personality you know like oh well, you're just you know type a or whatever people will say and um as always we have a very common practice of blaming blaming the victim in our in our societies <laughs> yeah. so you know instead of I think what I want people to understand is it really can be created by the condition and it can go away when the symptom, uh, sorry, when the SIBO is relieved. So here's what happens is we have all these overgrown bacteria and a good, a good proportion of them, the bulk of them are gram negative bacteria and their cell walls have um, a component in them that is recognized by our immune system. That's how, that's how our body can identify various infections and things. It's called endotoxin. It's, it's toxic actually to us, which is why it's called endotoxin. It's also called lipopolysaccharide that better describes the piece of the cell. And so LPS for short. So it has a couple of names. Anyway, when our immune system recognizes this, because we have all this overgrown bacteria, there's a lot more of these cell wall pieces, the immune system can get triggered. And then what the immune system does is releases cytokines and um, cytokines are kind of like messengers. 
and there's inflammatory cytokines and anti-inflammatory cytokines, and it specifically releases the inflammatory kinds. And then these have ways that they can trigger anxiety. Um, and so, and we know this, it's, it's very clear in all sorts of diseases that cytokines can influence mood and specific to sometimes anxiety, sometimes depression, et cetera, and also even brain fog. So um, there might even be other mechanisms, but this is the main one that we know of. So it's an immune inflammatory cytokine model. And when we get the, the load of the bacteria down, we reduce the LPS and then the anxiety calms. Just a reminder that this episode is sponsored by BU. These natural patches last for 12 hours, so they bring you prolonged relief and can begin working on relaxing your muscles before the pain kicks in, so you're prepared even if your period comes during the middle of the day. Some people even find that wearing them a night before their period can really help soothe the inflammation in the area. To shop, just head to the link in my show notes. This episode is also sponsored by my free guide, managing endometriosis naturally. If you don't know where to start with beginning to take a holistic approach to managing your endometriosis symptoms, then this might help you. Um, If you'd like to download it, just head to the show notes and follow the link and you can get your free copy. It's so interesting because I think that um, LPS is actually kind of responsible for a lot of the I mean I've I've been managing my endometriosis for the past five years you know naturally with an anti-inflammatory diet but if I veer off it just a little bit I'll have like a terrible period and I've always wondered like how how can just one like sugary thing undo all of that um, all of that work, it always felt like there was something else underlying. And I think it's because, you know, I was reducing my inflammation to a degree with an anti-inflammatory diet and anti-inflammatory supplements, but there was always this constant level of LPS, you know, in my body, because I, I mean, I eat a lot of vegetables, you know, I eat like eight to 10 portions a day. So, um, I'm having a lot of fiber and feeding the SIBO. Yes. It's like you'd have, right. It's like you have such a high level of this endotoxin there. You don't have any wiggle room. Yeah, exactly. And is that, is that kind of the same scenario with interstitial cystitis? Is that what's causing the, the pain and, um, the irritation in the bladder or is that kind of something, something else? Uh, I think that's definitely a part of it. And another aspect is that there's a theory that at least some of interstitial cystitis is due to hydrogen sulfide SIBO Mm. and hydrogen sulfide gas. um, It's a gas that we actually make. And so we make it because in normal amounts, it's good for us. It's protective. But when it gets excessive, this particular gas, it's actually toxic. It's actually toxic to the mitochondria in our cells and to nerves. And the theory is actually from Dr. Weinstock is that it's, it's toxic to hydrogen sulfide gas is toxic to the bladder and hydrogen sulfide is associated with a lot of pain, actually a lot of organ and visceral pain as well as body pain. And I, I think part, part of the mechanisms there are the toxicity to nerves, but I also think that there could be LPS triggering um, inflammatory cytokines as well. And I feel like it's probably a double whammy. 
with interstitial cystitis. Yeah, it's so interesting in terms of, I actually wanted to ask you this, in terms of like the body pain and the the kind of muscular pain and the joint pain, do you, I don't know if you, if you kind of notice this, but if someone had not necessarily a flare up, but they had, you know, a day where they ate more fiber and they were really bloated by the end of the day, would you see the muscular pain or the body pain correlate with the um, worsening of the typical SIBO symptoms like the bloating or the IBS or, or can the, can the body pain just happen all the time? Is it just, you know, your nerves are elevated all the time or does it correspond with, um, yeah, like the SIBO being fed? That's a really good question. The, the body pain, I've only seen it in my hydrogen sulfide patients. I've seen it as a sort of a symptom of a hydrogen sulfide gas. And uh, honestly, I haven't asked them and they haven't reported that sort of thing. Like, is it all the time or does it correlate with worse bloating? And I could make a case for either. <laughs> so, so I really actually think it could be either. Um, but I, I don't have good clinical information on that, actually. But we do know that hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen sulfide is related to, it's thought to be one of the underlying causes for fibromyalgia, actually. Mm. So that type of um, body pain, and, and it's all due to this toxicity. I mean, imagine if it's, certainly if it's affecting nerves, but also just destroying cells. I mean, good Lord. Yeah. Um, for people, when you when we say body pain, what do we what do we mean by that? Like, how does it feel in in the body? Well, more so, more so the like the muscles and and tendons and ligaments, not as much joints. So that's more of an arthritis type pain. Um, so more like in the the like you know like in the middle of the arm, so to speak, not the joint of the elbow. Mm-hmm. If you if you see what I mean, um, and it it just it feels achy and painful. It it can have different qualities. Um, but it's usually on a scale between achy and painful. Okay. So, and I mean, do you think that the kind of, if someone did have achy joints, that that might be down to the general inflammation in their body from the endotoxin? Absolutely. And also uh, rheumatoid arthritis in particular is very uh, associated with SIBO. Uh, So a, a local clinic here, did testing. One of one of the docs there, you know, learned about SIBO and saw a relationship. Started testing, and he had something like over a ninety five percent rate of positive. I mean, just a. He, he basically said everybody that he tested. So he was a he he was a rheumatologist, and he specialized just in rheumatoid arthritis, and just everybody he tested had SIBO. So I don't know the exact nature of the relationship there. And of course, this is different than osteoarthritis. Osteoarthritis is wear and tear on the joints. Rheumatoid arthritis is an autoimmune damage to the joints. So um, I don't know all of the mechanisms, but uh, there's there's obviously a way in which these are related and maybe it's the LPS. Mm. Yeah, it's so interesting because I um, I get really painful, like muscular pain, especially in my back. But then I get almost like gout-like pain in my knees and it always comes the muscular pain comes when I feel like my bloating is at its worst and my yeah and and my in and the pain in my knees is 
is like inflammation. They get hot, they swell up. And it always comes when I feel um, kind of my worst with my pain, like, um, and inflammation in general. Like if I'm not feeling well, if my IC has flared up, especially if my IC is really bad, my knees are bad as well. Like kind of my whole lower body kind of below my ribs will hurt. (laughs) It makes sense, doesn't it? You know, I wanted to tell you this, uh, as we were just talking briefly before we started, that, um, I see a, a really phenomenal chiropractor as my own, you know, doctor chiropractor. And he's in, in my, in my city here in Portland, he's considered the best and he's close to retirement. He's like a legend <laughs> and um, really, really excellent. He's the type of chiropractor that just does adjustments. And he said that almost always when someone has interstitial cystitis, he can make an extremely positive help in their pain and their entire condition by adjustments in in the back, usually the lower thoracic. Wow. And I just wanted to bring, bring that up. This is new to me. I hadn't known that. Um, and it's just anecdotal. You know, mm-hmm. it's just just from one doctor. But he said you'll um, he says that's actually been published in medical textbooks that interstitial cystitis can be helped by chiropractic adjustment. And he said specifically it's the lower thoracics. And I think about how you have back pain. So it's just something for people who might be listening with interstitial cystitis to consider trying to see a really good chiropractor. Yeah, no, that's, I'm, I am definitely going to do that because my IC is, is really at its worst it's ever been this year. So, um, yeah, that sounds, that sounds brilliant. I'm going to check that out. And then I also wanted to ask, because I feel like when you mentioned this, it really resonated with me and I posted about it on Instagram and so many people like, oh my gosh, this makes makes so much sense the um you have noticed with patients that they can eat kind of unhealthy kind of you know what we might call unhealthy like white bread and white pasta and and white foods without having as much of a reaction and then they eat you know vegetables and whole grains and fiber and they have really terrible reactions um what why does that happen isn't it just the worst for all of us in the healthcare profession? It's just, I'm just shaking my head the whole time. Like, Oh, so it's because, um, it's because the bacteria that are overgrown in SIBO, they, the, the food that they eat is, is fiber. It, it's so basically the white stuff, the, the starches and the quickly digesting foods can get, can get broken down and absorbed into our bodies so quickly that the overgrown bacteria don't have much of a chance to feed on them. If if they were presented with them with enough time, they, they would certainly feed on them. And it could make things worse. And in fact, there are some people with SIBO that cannot tolerate any of those starchy foods. It, it will bother them. But a lot of people, it seems as that it gets absorbed quick enough so it doesn't feed the bacteria. Whereas if you ate something with a lot of fiber, fiber, fiber in and of itself is something that humans don't have enzymes to digest and break down. And it's really exclusive food for bacteria, which is great for our large intestine bacteria. We're we're always encouraged to eat high fiber. And the reason why, one of the main reasons is to feed that microbiome, the positive microbiome in our large intestines. They can do all the good things they do for us. But in SIBO, these overgrown bacteria are right up high where our food comes in and they they go to town on, on fiber. And so fiber is in all whole foods. So like, you know, whole grains, like whole wheat, and of course, um, so like whole bread, and then most fruits and vegetables, and well, really all of them. So 
it's just so annoying. Now, what's really interesting is for people who have suffered from yeast overgrowth, otherwise known as candida, uh, that, that condition, the yeast go crazy on the simple carbohydrates, like the white foods. So for people who have had yeast overgrowth, they can't tolerate any of that. Um, but like I said, let's just say even like white sugar, which is not healthy, that can be um, you know absorbed so quickly, a SIBO person might be fine with it, but somebody with yeast, gosh, it barely touches their tongue and they're having a reaction. I mean, I'm over-exaggerating a little bit here, but, um, but so it's just so frustrating that in SIBO, the, the, the diet, it's sort of encouraged and the symptoms encourage, uh, encourages people to eat less. Mm, yeah, that makes so much sense because I, just because I'm out and about or, you know, it just so happens, I tend to eat not as many vegetables. I still eat a lot of vegetables, but not as many vegetables during um, the weekend as I do during the week. And my symptoms are always better <laughs> at the weekends. It's really, it's crazy. It's like meat and potato. If you're a SIBO person that can handle, you know, starch like potato mm. and freshly cooked and even sometimes better without the peel because that's where all the fibers, but it's just crazy. Like meat and potato is like a great diet for SIBO. It's like, Oh God. And us as healthcare practitioners, we're like, Oh, it's yeah. It's really, um, it's really ironic and frustrating. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I mean, I'm so aware we have so much to talk about. I have so many questions, but, um, I really want to sort of um, just make sure I've covered all the signs and, and the symptoms because I think so many people with endo do have SIBO and I want to make sure that they are, you know, they're clued up. But with the um, bloating, do you tend to notice a pattern? Like, is it all the time? Can it be all the time? Or is there times when it's less or worse? Yes, the pattern, the, the hallmark pattern. And by the way, abdominal bloating, and here we mean the physical swelling outward of the stomach or the abdomen, um, uh, it's the hallmark symptom. And the, and the way it typically presents is that it's worse in the evening and the night. And that's just because as we've eaten meals throughout the day, more gas has been created and the gas is physically swelling out the abdomen like a balloon. So it's just more gas in there. The balloon just keeps getting blown up bigger. And for people who don't have it very badly, what will happen is overnight, it will uh, come down as we're fasting. And the body just naturally as we're sleeping emits, you know, basically in essence, we fart out gas, but um, it might not be very noisy or obvious. It could just be a little bit coming out and that's just normal. And so then when they wake up, they might not be bloated. That's in a, in a, a, a less severe scenario for somebody who has it more severely, they're just bloated consistently, constantly all the time. And they don't really have any time where it comes down. But it's really interesting because when when it does come down, if, if you're in that situation, then you you know you can understand that it's not fat because what a lot of people will think is like, oh my gosh, I've gained weight. Not to say that they might not or they could have, but just not to confuse it here. They go, oh my gosh, my you know my whole abdomen's so big. How did I gain all this weight? And then you know it's obviously not fat if you wake up the next morning and it's flat. You know, so so it can be very confusing. And if somebody is overweight. It's hard to actually tell if they're bloated. Um, it can be hard to tell, you know. And so when, if somebody is thinking they have SIBO, what they can do if they're, um, if they're overweight and want to check is they can percuss their abdomen, basically put two fingers on your abdomen and tap with your other two fingers. And it should sound hollow. Oh, basically. okay. Okay. 
because of the gas, you know, it's like, there's, there's air in there versus if you were to do that same thing and tap on, like, say your thigh or something, Mm -hmm. it sounds dense. Mm. And have you, um, I think you talked about this in the course very briefly, and I think you said it was rare, but have you ever noticed bloating being triggered by, um, movement or exercise? Yes, I have. And I think what that's about is that the, the gas is, sort of in a loop of intestines that might have been um, because, because the small intestine is really long and and coiled upon itself. And so some of it is sort of back inside of our body, almost like kind of near our back. Mm -hmm. So maybe there was gas back there. And as you, as you moved around and exercised, and sometimes even as you begin eating, it starts to move the gas into different loops Uh and it could come into a loop that's in the front and then, you know, you have bloating. So yeah, anything that helps sort of the, um, or encourages the motility in the small intestine can move gas from one loop or area to another. And it's very confusing when that happens because a lot of people will say, I just, I just begin eating. I'm just chewing. I haven't even swallowed yet. And now I'm bloating. What's that about? And this is what it's usually about it. Cause obviously there hasn't been any time to make gas yet. You haven't even swallowed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so it's more about um, there are reflexes that get stimulated when we begin eating to actually, you know, move things along because new stuff is coming down. Um, one of them is the gastrocolic reflex, but we have tons of other reflexes. And so I think it's about how the gas moves um, into another segment. Okay. You've literally just answered one of my client's questions because she actually <laughs> said when she chews, she starts getting abdominal pain before she she's even swallowed. And I was like, that's I think it. That's, that's the yeah. Movement. I was like, I think yeah. it's like the movement, like your body getting ready to take in food is triggering it. Um, so, Okay. Brilliant. And the pain, you know, the pain of people with SIBO and IBS tend to have, you know, all this abdominal pain and it's attributed to visceral hypersensitivity, uh, which basically just means that we feel um, movement and we just feel things in our intestines that we shouldn't normally feel and we feel them as uncomfortable or painful. So yeah, just normal peristaltic movement can be very painful and distressing. It can create anxiety, sometimes burping, nausea, just the normal peristaltic movement. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. I, I'm going to move on from, I could, I could ask you so many more questions about this, but um, I, I don't want to hold you up forever. So um, in terms of the root causes, obviously we mentioned um, food poisoning, but um, what kind of are the common root causes and, and how does endometriosis play a part here? Yeah. So there are so many uh, circumstances that can lead to SIBO, a lot of diseases, a lot of other conditions like we've been mentioning, and some medications and even genetics can, can play a factor. But physiologically within the body, if we think about like how can bacteria overgrow or accumulate, because we have, we have protective measures that are always making sure we don't have an overgrowth, like the normal circumstances for us not to be overgrown with bacteria in our small intestine. So basically two, two kind of things would need to happen. One is that the small intestine like peristalsis or motility uh, needs to be slowed down significantly or stopped. And then that would mean bacteria can accumulate there because we always have bacteria coming in with all of our food. And just as we swallow and breathe, and there's just always bacteria moving through us, that's normal but they should move through and, and down and out and, and hang out in the large intestine. So um, that peristaltic, peristaltic movement we're most concerned about is called the migrating motor complex or MMC for short. And it's basically peristalsis during fasting. Um, so overnight in between meals. 
And it's called the housekeeper wave because it sweeps bacteria, like it wash, washes up and cleans after a meal, it sweeps bacteria and any other debris down into the large intestine. Um, so that's the sort of main underlying cause. And then the second, second one, I think has more to do with endometriosis, which is some, some kind of structural problem um, anatomically with that can affect the small intestines. And most often it's an obstruction, like a partial obstruction. So, so in the case of endometriosis, it would be um, one of two things, if not both. The endometrial tissue itself can be like on the small intestine, like outside of the small intestine and all throughout the abdomen, as we know. And, you know, monthly or in, the, in various cycles, as it swells, it can swell so much that can, it can basically press on and occlude or obstruct various parts of the small intestine, like the various loops. And, and then the other thing is adhesions. Adhesions are so common with endometriosis due to all the inflammation. And adhesions are like scar bands with, you know, within the body. And they can, if they form in such a way where they are um, a, obstructing the small intestine, that's the other thing. Because if you have a, um, an obstruction then of the small intestine, things can't get through. And here we're talking about a partial obstruction. So things can still get through a little bit, but it's very limited and there's an area now of backup. And you know, we can see this on imaging, like with a barium or with other imaging, we'll see an area where it's narrow because something's uh, constricting it. And above that, it's quite wide with all the stuff that's backing up behind it, which is really here we're talking about bacteria. So um, there's there's so many diseases and ways people can have their motility slowed, and food poisoning is the most common. Uh, it creates an autoimmune situation where the body attacks a nerve cell in the small intestine that's responsible for making this migrating motor complex happen. So that's how food poisoning can do it, but with endometriosis, I think it's much more about the structural. Um, and, you know, it can even wax and wane as the monthly swelling occurs. But if the adhesions are there, then that's, those adhesions are there all the time. So uh, I know you had wondered how common is SIBO with endometriosis. And to my knowledge, there haven't been studies done, which is very unfortunate. But I think from my understanding and just my own clinical experience, it's extremely common. Like I would consider it the norm. And I would consider if somebody did not have SIBO, I think that would be a, a minority and a, my, and a majority would, would have it. I'd love to hear your comments on this and what you have to say, because you're, you're an endometriosis <laughs> specialist, which I'm not. I'm a SIBO specialist, you're an endometriosis. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was explaining to you that every single client that I have had tested so far has been positive and really severe as well, like really high gas levels, like 117. Um, you know, and um now I'm getting just countless applications um of people suffering from both SIBO symptoms and endometriosis. And I've had such a dramatic response um since I've shifted to talking about SIBO and endometriosis, it's been really, um, really shocking. So many people contacting me, like sending me their test results and things. So, um, 
I really think it's, I mean, you know, it's been a hundred percent of my clients who have been tested so far and actually, look at, there you go. Yeah. It's, it's really, um, I'm yet to find someone who I haven't suspected might have SIBO. Not everyone can get tested at the moment because of, um, you know, budgets and, and things like that. But, um, I, I suspect it in all of my patients, all of my clients. And also there's a book that's just come out called um, Fix Your Period by um, Nicole Jardim, who's a um, kind of hormone period specialist. And she actually quoted a study. I don't know how recent it is. Um, and it's, I think it's a small study, but they found 80% of endometriosis patients had SIBO in this study. Oh my gosh. I don't know about this study. I hope you'll connect me. Yeah, I will. I will. I've looked, I must've missed it somehow. I think it's, I, I think it must be new because the book literally came out like last month. Um, and I mean, obviously she'd been writing the book for a while, but, um, I'd never heard of it. I have to know about it. Thank you. Yeah. 80, so 80%, that is exactly what I would say. I I would say at least 80%. That makes very good sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I really think at this point, I mean, I'm, I probably annoy quite a lot of doctors and certain people in the endo world, but, um, I really think that everyone who has a diagnosis of endometriosis should be screened for SIBO. I think you're right. Also have, I think you're right. I see the IC analyzed as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll talk about the IC connection. In terms of like the, you know, the connection with um, endometriosis and and IC, they dub like IC the evil twin of endometriosis. And that I believe has been found in 80% of, uh, and that there's a lot of studies between IC and endometriosis. And I think the general kind of um, findings are that, that 80% of people with endometriosis also have IC. And Perhaps, I don't know about this, but perhaps um, it develops later on as a result of living with the chronic pain and, you know, the pelvic floor tension and the inflammation. And um, But I would still be, you know, they can obviously do the, um, I can't remember the name of it right now, but they can go inside the bladder and maybe during a laparoscopy, they could check the bladder at the same time because they're not doing that. And then what I've noticed is this pattern of like the endometriosis symptoms calming down. And then once, once someone has had their endometriosis symptoms calmed down to a point where their body just feels a bit more, you know, pain wise normal, they start to realize there's this other pain here that they didn't notice before. And so, um, I just, I I think there's this trio. I really think there's this trio, like every single I think you're right. (laughs) um, So I just think they need to be addressed all together. And ideally, um, when there's a diagnosis or at least a suspicion of one, like looking into all of them, especially if the diagnosis or the suspicion is endo, because people then go another 10, 20 years with these other symptoms um, before they get the diagnosis of SIBO or IC. Right. And so, so, I mean, first of all, I just absolutely really appreciate you identifying this pattern and I'm going to refer to it now (laughs) from you, (laughs) the trio, endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, and SIBO. And, you know, here we know that SIBO is associated independently with endometriosis and interstitial Mm. cystitis. So, I mean, it's just, it's just crazy, but, um, but I, I love what you're saying is if you have one check for the other two and also 
if somebody has endometriosis and maybe has these other two, there's no reason an endometriosis we're believing is the cause of both the SIBO and the interstitial cystitis. It doesn't mean you can't treat these other things and bring and treat the endometriosis itself and calm all the symptoms down. Like what we started with saying in the beginning, just because you have an underlying cause that may not be able to be permanently resolved doesn't mean you can't get everything way under control. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, um, comes down like a, a lot of the time down to the adhesion work because so much of the pelvic pain is, you know, someone might have relief post-surgery for a couple of months or, or a year and then they start getting these other pains and all of these other problems like digestive issues and then the IC develops. And I think that having something like pelvic floor physiotherapy or, you know, like visceral manipulation, like clear passage would really help on so many levels, like the pelvic pain, the, the bladder pain and, and hopefully helping, you know, alleviate some of the SIBO or even, you know, get into that root cause and hopefully, you know, having resolution of that. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Adhesion work is is absolutely key for endometriosis and in general and SIBO specifically. Um, and you know, here we have really it's thought that the second most common cause of SIBO is actually adhesions. Like so, generally we think the most common cause of SIBO is food poisoning, which is a migrating motor complex issue, and the second most common cause is adhesions, which could be from a plethora of reasons, and endometriosis being one of them. So yeah, you mentioned clear passage. I'm sure you talk to all your listeners about this all the time. Clear passage is uh, 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 specific to dissolving adhesions with manual techniques, hands on the body. And then visceral manipulation, I love. And uh, then there's two other therapies that I'm aware of that can help adhesions. I mean, other than surgery, which can mm. then create more adhesions, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it, one is frequency specific microcurrent. And um, there, you, there's a list of practitioners. If you just Google that and maybe, or maybe say that with Carol McMakin, who is the, uh, the head of it all and the teacher of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can find a therapist in your location. And they have proven, just like the clear passage and the worn technique, they have uh, proven studies published oh, wow. that they can get rid of adhesions. Yeah, a very famous case that I heard her teach about was um, um, an NFL player, a football player. And then, uh, and then the other one is neural therapy, where they take uh, procaine and, and they actually inject it into adhesions and other things like that. And there's also a directory for them too. I can't remember what it's called right now, but I'll see if I can find it, or at least I'll send it to you so you can post it in the notes. But um, they also have they they specifically work on adhesions with that therapy. Okay, fantastic. I, I'm definitely going to put those in the show notes because I think so many people develop. I mean, I think um, I, I had Dr. Andrew Cook on, um, who's one of the world's leading endometriosis surgeons. And he was saying that um, I think they estimate 90% of people who have abdominal surgery develop adhesions. But he feels like with endometriosis patients, it's like 100% post-surgery. So that makes so much sense. Yeah. And you know, with with specifically relating to SIBO, not all adhesions are going to be placed in such a way that they partially obstruct the small mm. intestine. But I just I mean something to think about. It's not, it's not like adhesions equal yes. SIBO, yeah. SIBO, right? 
but um, but adhesions always equal something not good mm. because it for somebody. So even if it wasn't something that led you to have uh, SIBO, you know, with like you're saying here with endometriosis, adhesions are basically universal. And um, even if you didn't have the surgery yet, just from the condition, and they what they are, they're, they're these incredibly strong um, bonds they make something like a thousand pounds per pressure. I don't oh have that exactly memorized, but, don't quote me. <laughs> but um, it's, it's unbelievable the amount of tension and pressure they have. And uh, I did have one patient who had them from inflammatory bowel disease and she was, many people are actually bent over forward. It alters your posture because it's pulling from the inside and from the two places it's connected inside of you. So you can have a lot of postural issues and it can, it can just, you know, uh, constrict blood flow and all sorts of things that we need to be healthy. So adhesions are very important for, for anybody with endometriosis to get work done. Like that's like, to me, that's the basic therapy that would need to be done. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it it sort of plays into the IC part that we were mentioning as well. I, I don't believe I have adhesions around um, my small intestine. I think my SIBO is from the um, migrating motor complex damage, but I have an adhesion attached to my bladder and that definitely plays a part in, you know, with my IC. I feel it stretching and, and burning whenever I'm emptying my bladder. So yeah, that absolutely plays a part in it. Um, And with the, you know, the pelvic pain with endometriosis, I don't know if I literally only heard this the other day. I was listening to a podcast with um, Dr. Lara Bryden, I think is her name. She's a um, naturopathic doctor in um, New Zealand, I think, and she specializes in women's health. And she was saying that they found endotoxin in the pelvic cavity of people with endometriosis um, in studies. And I hadn't heard that before. Um, wow. Yeah. That really makes a lot of sense. It does. And, you know, so do you think that in the case of like leaky gut, the endotoxins are leaking over through the gut and into the pelvic cavity? Yes. And, and probably just related to the endometrial tissue as well. Um, I, I don't, I shouldn't speculate too much (laughs) on how it's happening, but that's fascinating and just shows all the more how important uh, doing things to help LPS could be and just doing things that help treat inflammation and all of these conditions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we know that endometriosis release is um, lots of prostaglandins into the area. I just hadn't, I hadn't, it was the first time I heard about, you know, endotoxin and um, endo associated together. So yeah, just fascinating. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to find out more about what I do or read more on endometriosis and living well with it, um, you can head to my Instagram page, which is this underscore endolife. Um, You can head to my website, which is www.thisendolife.com. And you can also get um, a free guide to managing endometriosis naturally on my website. Um, I've put the link in my show notes. It's a beginner's guide to getting started and all of the areas that I um, have worked on to help reduce my endometriosis symptoms and pain and live well with endometriosis. As always, if you like this show, please rate, review and or subscribe. It really, truly does help others to hear the podcast and hopefully will help them to 
live better with endometriosis. This episode was produced by The Pod Farm. Whether you're an established podcaster or just getting started, visit thepodfarm.com to see how they can help you go from an idea to a finished show that's ready to be heard by the world. Thank you.